Hello and welcome to the podcast of Tech EU. I am your host, Andrew Degler. In today's episode, I would like to play you back a conversation with Iggy Bassi, the founder and CEO at Servest. The company provides what it calls climate intelligence, and that is information about potential climate-related risks for all sorts of assets that's based on an enormous amount of historical data points. So listen to this one to learn more about the industry of climate intelligence and to hear how Servest was solving the three main startup challenges that is funding talent and customers. So yeah, if you can talk to me a little bit more about yourself. Uh, so what is your name? What is it that you're doing? And uh, how have you come to where you are? Yeah, wonderful. So uh, my name is Iggy Bassi. I'm the founder and CEO of a company called Sylvest. Uh, my life journey started through banking. I started banking about 25 years ago. Then I did strategy consulting. But about 12 years ago, I moved into the world of sustainable farming, where I built an integrated food and agricultural business in West Africa. It was during that experience that I realized that uh, the climate problem is way more significant. Extreme weather volatility is way more significant. So I thought to myself, there has to be a better way we can get better asset level information because I had a whole bunch of events on the farm that happened. We had a loss of a mill as well, but there was nothing really detected in terms of extreme weather events, long range weather forecasting, mod, um, climate forecasting. And what I realized when I sold that business is that most of the world's sciences that we need, they're all stuck in lots of silos. And they're all brilliant silos and they're all brilliant sciences, but they're not useful for everyday decision making. I said, how do we translate the world's complex sciences in a way that you and I can understand so we can make everyday decisions, right? I think that does several things. I think it it moves uh, wonderful science at the heart of decision making, but also it gives people an opportunity to move away from general concern of climate change to very specific concern over their assets. What's going to happen? When will it happen? You know, What am I most exposed to? What's the probable change? Of my valuation over time, for instance, right? All these become very important variables for people to make better climate-informed decisions. Right. And so uh, a few years ago, which year exactly did you start building Servest? Operationally, we started in 2016, but the first couple of years was largely around learning data sets and machine learning models and trial, trial and error. We did lots of early work in crop forecasting because uh, that was my background. That's where we had train, um, training data. So we did some work for some sovereign governments or some large companies, but something inside of me was telling me, well, this is not just a food and agricultural problem. This is way more fundamental. So why not try and map built environment assets as well, like like buildings and warehouses and factories and and, um, homes. So we can start measuring climate risk across all different asset classes, um, not just farmland. So we will be returning to farmland and forestry uh, probably next year. Uh, but right now we're launching a product, our first product, which is called EarthScan. So people can query um, their various assets across Europe and the States. They can build a portfolio. They can analyze um, historic risk, forward risk under, under different climate scenarios. And it's accessible to everybody. What kind of assets are we talking here? So assets, we view assets as anything that really generates um, ecological, economic, or social value. So asset for for you could be your factory, an asset for someone else could be the city of London, for instance, as an asset. So the spatial unit doesn't really matter to us. What matters is, is that you need to make better decisions in terms of climate and incorporate climate risk into your asset decision making, right? But over time, um, we want as many of the world's assets on the platform. So everybody can see everyone else's um, assets. So we have this concept called, I see what you see, Andre. And I think this is important because 
we need to move away. First of all, it's very difficult for people, even large companies and governments, to forecast climate risk at an at asset scale. But if you can do that, which, which is what we believe we do and can do and will continue to do, then it's really important that people start sharing that information. So we will make all those risks available openly so people can understand each other's bilateral risk, multilateral risk. Then people can start making better decisions. But there's a but then there's a level playing field. So from day one, there's a level playing field. Everybody understands each other's risks. Then you can have a grown-up conversation like, how do you think about adaptation? How do you think about net zero? And how do you get there? Right. And from the business model point of view, is it a uh, SaaS or is it something else for you? It's a subscription model, but it's what we call a freemium model. Um, I think if you're just interested in a handful of assets, you can have them for free. Um, if you're larger enterprises or banks or large governments, then it's a subscription model based on the number of assets that are on your portfolios that you're analyzing. So the money-making uh, clients for you would be with some very big uh, organizations? Pretty big, yeah. And or government agencies who are looking for more sophisticated tools to help them think about climate risk. Mm-hmm. So I, I still I still want to sort of uh, try and understand what exactly do you mean when you're talking about this uh, climate intelligence and uh, climate risks. But what uh, what sort of things are you looking at? Sure. So when we look at your assets, let's say we take your factory for instance, or you have a collection of factories in three or four countries across Europe, we would want to know what's already happened to those um, assets or the locations where those assets are placed, because these are your high value critical assets that you depend on, your suppliers depend on, your banks, insurance companies depend on. What's already happened in terms of the last 50, 60 years, which variable has changed the most? Uh, Because often it's quite telling that large companies have not collected any, uh, let's just call it an institutional memory of what's already happened to their assets. Um, So they can't really tell you whether they've experienced twice as much rainfall, twice as much average heat, for instance, or drought patterns are are now occurring with greater frequency, with greater intensity. So first of all, we just baseline your assets. What's already happened to your assets, right? And we don't think there's a single variable that can explain this, which is why we move towards uh, multivariable modeling, because single risk dimensions can be quite misleading, or at best, they can be incomplete, Right, You would want to take decisions on a $100 million factory if you have 10, 15 different variables looking at this, all what saying actually your risk is high across multiple different variables as opposed to just a single variable. Right, But also going forward, uh, you can then start looking at, well, how will this asset perform under different climate scenarios, i.e. under different RCPs? So we can have the Paris Aligned Agreement, we can have a business as usual or something in the middle, for instance. So by analyzing different pathways to temperature and other climate variables, you can see, well, what's the risk on my asset from a physical risk point of view? Which hazards are likely to accelerate? Which ones are likely to um, decelerate? What does that mean for my factory? If your water, if your factory is very water dependent, for instance, you may want to know early and your suppliers may want to know early that you're likely to have greater competition for water in the, in the next 15 years. What is your plan to adapt to that, that, that new reality? Right. And this moment of time, you already have uh, uh, the platform providing uh, this sort of intelligence in a fully automated mode. It's mainly automated. I'd say it's about 95% automated. We have an early, what we call an early access program for large enterprises. So we're onboarding 20 large enterprises now, and mainly, mainly asset intensive companies, real estate companies, industrial companies, factories. So they'll be onboarded over the summer uh, and we're fine-tuning some of the analysis. You have to remember, Andre, that, that many companies have not played with climate intelligence before. 
they actually don't know what it is, right? Yeah. They, they need to know this thing because it affects their business, but they actually don't know how to interpret this type of data. What does it mean to when, when we tell you that your risk is X, Y, and Z? So the, over the summer, we're working with 20 large companies um, to handhold them, to guide their journey, to see which portions of that journey can be fully automated by September, October, November, because in quarter four, we will be making this generally available to anybody, right? But prior to that, Let's get the feedback loops that are so critical to the product experience uh, from these large um, enterprises. And do you think these organizations, the bigger ones, would be better off hiring a chief climate officer or whatever <laughs> to interpret this sort of data? <laughs> That's an excellent question. So we have our own climate um, chief climate risk officer. I think over time, I think it goes without question to say that whether you call it a climate officer, climate risk officer, there'll need to be greater climate literacy, both at the operating level and at the board level. Um, that's just a that's just a truism. I, I don't think anyone who's going to deny that. So whether they're looking at new disclosure laws, whether they're looking at putting up $100 million factories, you'll have to start looking and start factoring in climate intelligence into your decision making. Because at, at the same time as enterprises are getting smart about climate risk, so too are banks, regulators, insurance companies, and your corresponding business partners are also getting smarter as well. They will be demanding this type of information. Andre, tell me about your water risk. Tell me about your temperature risk. Tell me about your resilience. Tell me about your net zero pathway. Tell me about your adaptation plan. Because they will be able to go onto the platform, look at Andre's factory and say, looks like you're going to be experiencing these um, issues over your assets. Tell me what your pathway is to adaptation. Mm -hmm. And you so far have been talking about uh, assets that are already there, but uh, is there also a possibility, for example, for a company to analyze uh, like a place to build a new factory, for example, or something like that? That's an excellent question in the sense that, yes, in Western Europe, in North America, a lot of our infrastructure is already built and most of what's standing today will be standing by 2050. It's rapid emerging markets, it's new acquisitions, it's new hotels, it's new factories. So the net new build, we think everybody should be encoding climate intelligence, the banks, insurance companies, the regulators, the city planners. They've been saying, wait, wait a minute, you want to put this factory in this location? What does that mean from a net zero point of view, but also from an adaptation point of view? Will this be resilient to the forecasted change we're expected to see in this location, right? Because why would an insurance company insure once they know that there's going to be three times as higher probability of rainfall patterns, flooding patterns? Therefore, the design of your asset needs to change to match the corresponding climate risk you're likely to face. So this sounds this sounds like a whole lot, really, uh, I have to say. And uh, so how many people do you actually have working on all this? Uh, so right now we have about 70 people. We are still hiring. But I th again, our goal is to give and generate the intelligence so other service providers, companies can start acting upon that intelligence. So, for instance, we can tell you that you're likely to face a certain risk, but then the civil engineering company is going to tell you, well, how deeper do you need to dig, right, your foundations? That's something that we can only guide on. But this this is where this intelligence needs to be plugged into um, architectural systems, design systems, city planning systems, right? Bank credit systems um, over time. So we see it as a network of different intelligence uh, points that need to be connected across pretty much every every economic actor, every asset over time, every decision maker over time. They will have to start looking at climate intelligence for all their decisions. Right.
And if we look at the other, uh, at another side of uh, of uh, Sylvester, so as a startup, as an entrepreneur uh, yourself, how what was uh, what has your journey been like so far? Was it actually hard to I don't know raise the first funding uh, for uh, these sort of organization? Uh, how was it? Uh, how was it with uh, how was it with uh, VCs in general? I think for all entrepreneurs, um, for for like for every startup you do, you just become marginally smarter, um, and you try and avoid the same mistakes. Um, but I, I think generally the market for venture and climate has um, accelerated over the last twelve months. I, I would say, but prior to that, it was hard. Absolutely, I think it was very hard because it's always you're trying to convince people of a problem they know about but they can't conceptualize in a practical sense, right? What does that mean? Unless they've been affected directly by a forest fire or a flood or something, it's very difficult to explain (laughs) to VCs what does climate risk mean? So I think uh, the first round of financing came from uh, largely family and friends, uh, people who have got an um, interest in the sector or people who've experienced something in climate and said, you know what, Mm -hmm. we need to start measuring something better. Then the second investment came from a firm in Belgium and one in France, and they were fairly sophisticated VCs who understood that we need to invest in a new wave of uh, machine learning tools that can solve bigger problems and also make an impact as well. So they're very much impact-driven investors. And then we just closed a round earlier this year it was a $30 million um, Series A with a larger institutional round who fundamentally believed in um, large visions um, for large problems. And this is where Draper, Draper Esprit were great. Uh, they just joined the board as well. But I think the markets change. I think disclosure laws have changed. I think also COVID had a ma- major push. People started re- re- reimagining their relationship with risk. For instance, whether you're a policymaker, large companies, you said, where are the next wave of risk coming from? And how do we start getting smarter on this, right? We will see more volatility. We do have to get to net zero. Suddenly, what was a fringe issue then became mainstream for sort of venture capital. And then the early pioneers of venture capital start, start investing. Now, I think pretty much every VC will look at a climate tech company, but there's not a body of understanding within the VC fraternity. So you still need to use, as an entrepreneur, you still need to use the you know things like the SaaS models and how do you get product market fit and how do you think about customer satisfaction. All those are still maintained just because you're looking at a problem that hasn't been solved yet. Um, the way you sell and raise capital, you still need to look at orthodox metrics. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that doesn't change. And uh, yeah, and so and so VCs is uh, one part of the the whole equation. So how about the other side? How about uh, talent? Uh, was it uh, was it easy to get uh, the talent, especially since, as far as I understand, you uh, would be competing for uh, the same uh, talent as. Uh, uh, larger organizations, so machine learning specialists, AI specialists, uh, so and engineer, engineering talent that you need. Yeah, no, I think we we were pretty fortunate. Um, one, we have a fairly compelling vision. Uh, we're also mission driven, which allows people who want to marry the talent with making an impact to, to, um, to come and join us. We certainly can't afford well Google Pay, right? But we certainly <laughs> have um, the same level of talent um, that Google have. I think some of the early partnerships with the universities were fairly fairly fundamental to us. So we had Imperial. We have an ongoing relationship with Alan Turing. Uh, we're helping uh, with a program with Oxford and Imperial as well. So I think the talent flow is, is we've been pretty fortunate in the talent. Um, 
I say fortunate, it's, it's, it's also by the problem that we're solving. It's You wouldn't bring this range of skills together in a normal startup, right? And that's what makes it quite challenging. We have policy people, we have machine learning, we have scientists, we have data engineers, we have people trying to sell this for the very first time. So it's a very eclectic set of skills. And sure, we've made mistakes and we'll continue to make mistakes because there's no playbook for how do you build a climate tech business that's going to be commercial. It doesn't. It just doesn't exist today. And how about the third part of this all that is the customers? Uh, so the first customers, uh, how, how did that go? So I think we started doing some testing back in 17, 18, 19, building individual risk models for the food and agricultural clients. Um, listen, it's very hard because there's no prior. There's no prior experience of buying climate risk analytics or climate intelligence tools. So there's no buying, there's no purchasing experience. In sort of many ways, I think the threat of um, legislation or actual legislation for disclosure is a forcing mechanism for people to get smart on how they buy. But it would be a real mistake, Andre, if people started buying um, climate intelligence or climate risk analytics tool just from a regulatory perspective. Right? This is not just about regulation because climate volatility, the path to net zero, these problems will be with us for decades to come. So this is not a regulatory tick the box and move on. This is a new superpower that companies and governments have to absorb. They have to build this capability. So this is not just about uh, regulation, just to be very clear. Right. So, but how hard was it to actually get those first uh, customers outside, let's say, of the agricultural sector? I would say pre-COVID, it was hard and we weren't really ready for that. I think in the last six, seven, eight months, we've just seen a surge of demand. And that's great uh, because this, again, speaks to automation, which is why you need automated platforms for this to work, right? Because you cannot... We cannot provide a service layer on top of our platform. We will rely on other service providers to help us with that, right? But in terms of the range of companies that we're seeing, uh, we've also been surprised at the size and the range. Again, climate doesn't discriminate because you're big or small, right? So if you're feeling the effects as a mid-sized company, a mid-sized government, you will you'll be seeking these types of solutions, right? I think if you're looking for disclosure laws, um, you are compelled to look for these. But outside of disclosure laws, people are just looking to discover their risks. And that's where EarthScan is really useful. You can just say, well, what's, the, what's my baseline risk? What am I going to be subject to over what time frame, right? And if you look at the data that you have generated for your customers so far, what, what do you see there in general? Can you make any conclusions, uh, spot any trends, any patterns? Uh, like, is, uh, is there a lot of climate risks, it seems, uh, that are discovered when uh, customers uh, come to you and try to get this analysis done? I think the customers that have come to us that have got a multi-jurisdictional footprint, like a global footprint of assets, I think they've never had the capability of looking at uh, what does my climate risk like, um, look like across my entire portfolio of assets. So you can start segmenting. These assets require urgent adaptation. These assets may not may not be suitable for this location over time, right? So they can dissect. If you have a handful of assets, you can probably assess this relatively quickly. You can, you can use consulting firms for that. But where you have very complex geographical footprints or you're codependent on your suppliers, and now you're thinking that actually a single variable is not going to give you the answer. So you have to model multivariate risk across pretty much every geography on the planet over time. And a large FTSE company, for instance, may have a footprint in 50, 60 different countries, right? How on earth do you measure that risk, right? And this is why you need a mathematical solution. You, you need an ML framework to start learning these risks and start reporting these back, or else it just becomes difficult to measure that.
And does it look to you that uh, your customers uh, mostly end up uh, realizing that their risks are higher than they thought or lower than they thought or about the same as they thought? I think they feel more informed about the risks. There are some risks um, and and some risks match their perceptions of risk, which is low risk, no risk. Others match their perception of high risk. Some are just surprises. But I think what surprises people most is just the acceleration of risk, like how much risk has changed over the last two or three decades, right? And what's the forecast? Because I think the RCP scenarios are quite radically different in terms of outcomes, right? What does that look like for them from a physical risk point of view? Um, so I think it's a spread, Andre. I think it's a spread, but it'd be interesting to do surveys every six, seven months because what, what I'm really interested in is what is the current perception of risk against the actual analysis? Right, so we try and test that as much as possible through almost blinding the results and asking our clients to guess what their risk is. <laughs> I think that may be useful for, for, for um, policymakers as well. Say so what you think the risk is, and, and then we'll reveal the data. <laughs> yeah, for sure, that's uh, that makes a lot of sense. So we've got another five minutes, and I wanted to wrap it up with uh, a little bit of another qu- uh, different question. Um, I'm just trying to also understand what the landscape of uh, climate tech uh, looking right now. So. Uh, What's your what's your competition like? What's what's the industry like that you are working in? What what are the challenges for you and for the industry in your opinion? Yeah, I think the broader challenges is we have uh, we have users. We all have users. So whether you're a carbon accounting platform, your other physical risk modeling platforms, or sort of um, solution providers, you're all facing the same structural challenges. Which is why yeah, you've got this pending legislation around disclosure. You're seeing greater volatility, but you have a customer base who doesn't quite know how to absorb your product. So I think the tapestry is very very difficult, um, and also it's not harmonized from different parts of the world. So we may have disclosure laws in the states that may look different from disclosure laws in the UK that may look different to disclosure laws in Europe. We don't yet know what that landscape for harmonization would look like yet. So we're all taking bets on what would that look like over time, right? In terms of competition, yeah, listen, there's some wonderful companies building fantastic risk models um, that are uh, brilliant research groups who are building let's say, fire risk models or flood risk models. Um, I think our scale, our slight differentiation is to say, well, a single risk is not going to give you the answer. Let's tie all this together. But let's think about an open intelligence system rather than building uh, model by model by model, which is say, well, why can't we get people to start sharing their risk as a network, right? Because if we want to stay within a Paris-aligned world, we need to think about using all the tools at our disposal, which means digital platforms, which means creating network effects on that intelligence, which means creating that level playing field that multiple parties who are interested in a single asset can extract that information um, as fast as possible. But listen, I think the market generally is quite nascent. Despite all the buzz in venture capital, I think structurally it's still quite nascent. We don't quite know which way it's going to go. I think there's a lot of noise around carbon, which I think is absolutely necessary. Emission reductions is really necessary, but it's insufficient by itself. It's not sufficient just to set a net zero goal. You also need to think about your adaptation because the world will get hotter, wetter, wilder, more extreme. How do how do your assets fare um, in that environment? Because we've already locked in a certain amount of physical risk volatility for the next three or four decades, right? Irrespective of emission targets, which we absolutely need to get to, but you still need to go through a different regime. Humans haven't lived through that kind of regime before, right? We've never experienced what we're about to experience. How do assets perform? How do humans perform? How does labor productivity perform in that world? 
Right. That makes a lot of sense. And uh, this is definitely something to uh, think about uh, beyond the time uh, allowed uh, for for this episode. But uh, Iggy, thank you so much for uh, joining today for this episode. Uh, uh, thanks a lot and uh, good luck with uh, the climate intelligence and uh, service. Thank you very much, Andre. Thanks for having me. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. And this is it for our today's episode. Big thanks to Iggy Bassi for coming on the show and big thanks to you for listening today. If you like the show, follow us wherever you listen to your podcasts and if that place has a possibility to rate and review the show, please do that as well. Our audio engineer is run by SoundPulse, that is sound-pulse.com. Your questions, suggestions and opinions are very welcome. Please do send them to podcast at tech.eu. This was TechEU Podcast. I am Andrew Degler, and I will talk to you again very soon. For now, take care and enjoy the rest of your week. Bye-bye.